Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. We're going to be mostly in Romans chapter 7 today, and uh, you know, Romans 6, 7, and 8 Uh, that section of the book of Romans is teaching about the process of sanctification. And it's teaching how God's grace works in your life so so that your life reflects who Christ is. And last time we were looking at at those passages there in Romans chapter 6, we saw kind of a a three-step process that's described there that begins with knowing some things, knowing some doctrines from God's Word, Uh, The second step was to reckon those things to be true. So that if the scripture says that you're dead to sin, that to reckon it would be able to to look at yourself or think about yourself and really believe that what that that doctrine says is true, that, that I as a believer in Christ am dead to sin, that I am freed from sin, you see. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to know those things theoretically, know them in our mind, be able to come to God's Word and, and read those things. And another thing to, to really reckon it to be true of ourselves. We saw that word reckon is the same, same word that's used when it talks about God imputing righteousness to the believer. It's not that, that the believer, you know, in their, in their actions and thoughts actually becomes righteous at the moment of salvation, but God declares it to be true. And, and in the same way, we, we spend far too much time, uh, you know, looking at the, the circumstances of our lives and trying to determine our, our position and standing before God based on that instead of looking at God's word and what he says about who we are. And, and then that third step in the process that we saw there in Romans chapter 6 was to yield. Not as legalism teaches that you need to put so much more effort into, into you know, doing the right things and stopping the wrong things, but rather to just yield to those things you know and reckon to be true. You see? And it's a, it's a very different thing. It, it's God's word doing the work in the believer, not the believer going out and doing the work. And... Um, there, in Romans chapter 7, um, you know, the, the topic is really the same topic of sanctification, but Paul's looking at it from a, maybe a little bit different perspective. Here, Romans 6, again, is about you know, reckoning who you are in Christ and, and understanding that identification that you have with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Romans chapter 7 is describing a, a struggle that takes place. And, you know, this chapter here in, in Romans 7, if you read various commentaries and things, you find all kinds of different opinions. Um, some people look at, at some of the things here in Romans 7 and they say, well, that's Paul writing, uh, recording the perspective of a lost person, that this ought not be the, the, uh, the experience of a saved person. Um, you know, they try and get around the passages in that way. Uh, you know, other people do, do different things with the passage, but I, I think, you know, most of the, the commentaries that you read on the passage, I think, miss some of the important points here in 
Romans chapter 7. And, and again, this, this is meant to complement and reinforce some of those things that, that we saw in chapter 6. But uh, let's start in Romans chapter 7. Let's start in verse 4. It says, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. He says you become dead to the law. And you know, the, the word dead in Scripture, when we think of something being dead, often we, we think of something passing out of existence or, or someone passing out of existence. That's kind of, kind of the worldly view of death. You realize that in the Bible, death never means that. Whether it's talking about physical death, spiritual death, death never means to pass out of existence. What death means is it means to be separated. In physical death, the, the soul and spirit are separated from the body. When the scripture said, when God said to Adam and Eve that in the day they ate of the fruit of the tree, they would surely die. Now they didn't fall over physically dead on the ground the day they ate of that tree, but they did surely die the day they ate of that tree. They were separated from God by their sin. You see, uh, I'll tell you that, that much of Bible study is about correctly defining the terms. And if you have the wrong definition for a term, it, it can completely skew your view of all kinds of things in Scripture. Uh, there are people, for instance, that teach things like, like soul sleep, that, that when you die physically, that you're not conscious until the resurrection and that kind of thing. And those are based on faulty definitions of the word dead or death. Uh, when the scripture says that, that we, before we were saved, were dead in trespasses and sins, we were, again, set like Adam and Eve were, separated from God in, in trespasses and sins. In Romans chapter 6, when it said we are dead to sin, say the lost person is dead in sin, and they're dead to God, but, but uh, you know, they're very active in sin. Uh, when it says it, there at the beginning of Romans 6 that we're dead to sin, when you believe the gospel, that, that changes, right? You were, you were dead in sin, now you're dead to sin, and you're alive unto God, okay? You're still dead in a certain sense. You're still alive in a certain sense. But you see how it changes for the believer in Christ. And here in Romans 7, Paul says, you're not just dead to sin. He says you're dead to the law. Now, in the, in the context, and I probably picked a bad spot to jump in there as a starting point. But he's talking about marriage and, and the way that, that physical death looses the bonds of marriage so that, that uh, you know, when you're married, you're married till death do us part. And you know that uh, from other scripture that in the resurrection there isn't marriage. You aren't going to be married to the person you're married to in eternity, okay? Marriage is something that from, it's designed to continue from the time you enter into those marriage vows to physical death. So that when you have a married couple and one of them dies, the other one can go and remarry someone else, and, and that's not adultery. There's nothing wrong with that. And in the same way, Paul says here that we're become dead to the law by the body of Christ. We had been joined to the, to the law, okay? And we're dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. 
And verse 5 says, for when we were in the flesh, now that's another term referring to before salvation, when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Now, in this passage, the, the Apostle Paul in many ways kind of personifies sin as if it's a, a, you know, a living, act, active thing. Here he, he talks about the motions of sins. And um, I, I remember hearing an account one time um, that, that made me think of this passage, um, an account of, uh, of uh, some people that were in Africa and they contracted this parasite. And, and the parasite, I forget even what it was, but it, it you know, lays its eggs uh, inside a person's flesh and those eggs hatch inside of there and those larvae eat their way out of that that flesh. And when I heard that account, all I could think of was this passage that talked about the motions of sins. You've got, you, and, and you know, the person who's afflicted with this can feel these larvae um, inside their flesh. That's how Paul's describing sin here. Is it, he says, when we were in the flesh, there were these motions of sins. There was this thing inside of us that was active and it was working. And, and he says that, that, uh, that those motions of sins were by the law. Uh, he said it worked in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. And just as eventually those larvae eat their way out of that flesh, um, that you wonder why, why lost people do terrible, wicked things. You wonder why a, you know, a deranged Jared Loeffner will go and, and shoot people on a street corner. Uh, you wonder why those things happen. It's that motions of sins. You see, and it and it it's going to work its way out, and you can do everything you want to do, to, want to try to do, to try and cover it up, to try and and uh, you know make pretend like it doesn't exist, but it manifests itself, and and you notice he says there that those motions of sins were by the law. Now, how how could these motions of sins be by the law? I mean, the law is something God gave that taught righteousness. How could these motions of sins be by the law? Um, If you, verse 6 says, Now we're delivered from the law of that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Verse 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid, nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Now notice the description again here of that working of sin. It says, But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died, and the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. And Paul concludes then, verse 12, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. He says, Was then that which is good made death unto me, God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment 
might become exceeding sinful. And he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. What he's saying there, he, he says that, he talks about a time when he says he was alive without the law. And, but he says the commandment came. See, you're born with a sin nature, okay? Now, until you begin to learn right and wrong, that sin nature doesn't have much to rebel against. That sin nature is uh, of such a character that when, when, a, when a boundary is set, when there's a, a line that's set and you're not supposed to cross that line, your sin nature has a desire to cross that line. In fact, there was a, a word used there in that passage that uh, was the word concupiscence. And there's not a, that's an older English word, not a, not a uh, uh, very common word today. But to, it just in modern English, we, we wouldn't have a really good way to translate that. Because what concupiscence is, concupiscence is the, the desire that you have to do something because you know you're not supposed to do it. That's, that's what that word means. Um, the... Uh, in fact, that, that word concupiscence, um, you almost see the word cupid there in that word concupiscence because cupid represents that desire and, and that kind of thing. Um, that's, that's, uh, they would come from similar roots. But that's what that word concupiscence means. When your sin nature, when somebody sets a, 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 a boundary or a limit and says, don't do this, your sin nature wants to rebel against it. Now, not everybody's sin nature is going to rebel against the same things, right? For Maybe for some person, uh, you know, their, their sin nature causes them to lie. Maybe for somebody else, their sin nature uh, causes them to commit adultery. Maybe for it's something else. And what we always tend to do is we tend to excuse our own sin, but every, what everybody else does is pretty bad. I always have good reasons why I do the sins I do, but everybody else, they shouldn't do the things they do. Right? That, that's also an effect of the sin nature. What Paul says here is he says he, he wouldn't have known. He says, I had not known lust except the law had said thou shalt not covet. Right? So the law comes along and the law says thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not, you know, covet would be that, that you know, an inordinate desire for, for uh, something that belongs to somebody else or that doesn't belong to you. And what Paul says that did was that that sin, his sin nature, took occasion by the commandment. Now, again, what he presents here is he presents that sin nature almost like, like you would present an enemy, right? That the sin nature is there trying to, trying to work against him, work against what's in his best interest, so that when the law says, thou shalt not covet, his sin nature says, oh, I have an occasion. I have an opportunity now because now I have something to rebel against. And he says, sin took occasion by that commandment. He said, it wrought in me that concupiscence, that desire to do something that I'm not supposed to do. Um, he says that without the law, sin was dead. And again, it's not that... that uh, you know, he didn't have that sin nature, but he's saying before he learned that law, the sin nature didn't really have anything to, to rebel against. But when that commandment came, he said instead of it being to life, it, it was to death because it condemned him, because it gave his sin nature now something to be active and to, to rebel against. 
And he says in, in verse 11 that that sin, again, he uses that, that term, taking occasion by the commandment. He says, it deceived me and by it slew me. And so now Paul's not in any way trying to cast any aspersions on the law. He says the law is holy and just and good. The problem isn't with the law. The problem is with us. And you see, as, as he begins that, that passage, that was really all kind of introduction to the main part of what we're going to get to today, you see the futility of thinking that, that you can live by the law, right? Now, as a believer, you're not in exactly the same state that Paul describes there in those first few verses, because you also have a new nature. He's describing there the activity of the old nature and the response of the old nature to God. When you believe the gospel, when you trust that Jesus Christ paid for all of your sins, that, that he died and, and was buried and rose again the third day, when, when you trust in that, you have a new nature that God creates in you that doesn't respond in that way. But that's the way the old nature responds to the law. And in fact, the law was given, again, not to, not to make people righteous. The law was given... Um, to a certain extent, to restrain the, the action of that sin nature. But the effect of the law is to condemn. That's how the law does it. It does it by, by condemning. Not by making anybody righteous, but by condemning. And when a, when a believer tries to live under the law, essentially what they're doing is they're trying to live in that old nature, thinking that somehow now as a believer, the old nature is able to do things that it, that it couldn't do before. But see, it's not that God has somehow reformed your old nature. What he's done is he's created in, in the believer a new nature. And you know, the new nature cannot sin. The new nature that you have, that new man that the scripture describes, it says it's created in righteousness and true holiness after the image of him that created him. It cannot sin. So the new nature doesn't need a law, and the old nature can't keep a law. All right? So if those, if those are the two natures you have as a believer, what, what need is there of the law? You see? The one nature can't keep it, the other one doesn't need it. Um, he, let's, let's continue here. Um, and again, a lot of that is introduction to what we wanted to get to here, especially in verses 15 down through the end of the, of the chapter. And if there's one thing you notice in... The rest of these verses we're going to look at today. There's one word that appears over and over and over and over again in this passage. And, in fact, it's a word that consists of just one letter. It's the word I. In fact, the word I appears so many times in this passage that some of the verses are difficult to read. They're difficult to read out loud because the word I is in there so many times. Uh, in fact, if you look just at verse 15 and count how many times the word I appears in verse 15, one, two, three, four, five, six times just in that one verse, just in that one sentence. And by the time we get to the end of the passage here in uh, Romans 7, Paul's going to just conclude, he's just going to conclude that he's just a wretched man um, as, he, as he looks at himself. And you see, that, that emphasis on I 
I, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, this is my will, I'm going to will to do good, um, is a, is a, it's a futile thing. It's something that you can't, you can't accomplish because it puts the emphasis not on who you are in Christ and who Christ is, but it puts the emphasis back on that old man. Notice verse 15. Verse 15 says, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Now, the word would there is just just a form of the word will. And it's not, usually when we use the, the word would, um, we use it as, as just kind of a, kind of a, a helping verb or, or something like that. We don't use it as, a, as an active type thing. But that's the way it's used here. To will something, it's, it's used in that active sense of actively willing something. And what Paul says here about that will, he says, what I would or what I will, what I actively willed to do, that do I not. Now, let's, let's notice something. Put a mark here in Romans 7. And I want you to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. You know, the, the will is a, is a funny thing. Um, it's a dangerous thing as well. Genesis chapter 2, when God created man and woman, and he puts them in the in the garden, and he gives a command, right? He commands them in uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Actually, at this point in the passage, Eve has not yet been created. It's just Adam. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, he creates man, he puts him in this garden. The only instruction he gives him, I mean, he gives him instruction, he gives him a positive instruction to go out and dress and keep the garden, right? The only negative instruction that he gives, where he, where he forbids something to him, is there's this one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and he tells him that the day he eats of it, He'll surely die. Now, what could be wrong with the knowledge of good and evil? I mean, isn't that something we come to God's word for, to learn what is good, what is evil, what does God desire of us? Uh, what, what could be wrong with that knowledge of good and evil? Keep in mind that, that Adam, when Adam is originally created, he's created in the image and likeness of God. In fact, Adam, the state he was in at this point, is very much like the state of that new man that is created in you when you believe the gospel. He was, he was perfectly innocent. He was, he had, uh, you know, he didn't have righteousness in the sense of, of God's righteousness, but he had righteousness in the sense that he had never sinned, right? And he did have, obviously, some knowledge of good and evil, because if God tells him, go and dress and keep the garden... Obviously, it would be wrong for him not to go and do that, right? Uh, if God tells him, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there would be a knowledge there that to, to disobey that would be wrong. But 
Adam didn't have a knowledge. He didn't have a, maybe you could say a conscience like we have. He didn't have a knowledge of, of all the different kinds of good and evil. A lot of, our, a lot of our natural inclination about what is good and evil is based largely on, you know, what Christ, Christ said, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, that's a lot what our basic view of, of uh, good and evil is based on, what we would want other people to do to us. And we have kind of this natural view of, of good and evil. He didn't have that. And what it's talking about when it's talking about the knowledge of good and evil is not just knowing right from wrong and knowing that you should do what God says and, and not disobey, but it's a knowledge of human good and evil. See, it's a, it's a knowledge of your own goodness and, and evilness. And when, when Adam and Eve sinned and they ate of that fruit, they um, took on a knowledge of good and evil that they gained from that tree, where now they weren't just completely dependent on God. Now they, in their own mind, in their own thoughts, they were able to determine some things about what they thought about good and evil. And, and there's a matter of the, the will that comes in here. Um, because you realize that a lost person, can a lost person will to do some good things? As far as their conception of, of good and evil is, certainly lost people do all kinds of things that, that they, you know, will to do. They're not good. You understand they're not good in the, in the sense of God's goodness. God says there's none that doeth good. But uh, they, can, they can will to do good. And actually in, in that passage in Romans 7, Paul there doesn't say that he can't will to do good. He says he can will to do good. He just can't figure out how to do the good. Okay, there's a difference between willing to do something and actually doing it and performing it. Okay, and uh, so Adam and Eve, once they had this knowledge of good and evil, now rather than just being dependent on God's will and God revealing his will to them, now they had their own will to do good or, or not to do good. And um, that will can be a very deceptive thing, even the will to do good. If we go back to our, to our text there in Romans 7, notice what Paul says about his will to do good. Now understand, Paul, you know, contrary to what, what some people say about this passage, this passage is all written in the present tense. Paul is not describing his attitude before he got saved. He's not describing um, you know, anything other than what his present state was. Okay, he is describing, Paul as a, as a saved man, is describing a, a thing that takes place with every believer and a struggle that takes place. What, what he says, verse 15, he says, uh, again, Romans 7, verse 15, For that which I do, I allow not. He says, There's, there are things that I do that I, in, in my mind, I don't, I don't allow those things. I don't think those things are good. I don't think I ought to do those things. But he says, I, I do them. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, the, the good, there are good things that I, in my will, would like to do. He says, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Now, if you're honest, you can relate to that right? 
you relate to that? That there are good things you would like to do that you don't do? And there are things that you hate that you do nonetheless? He, he says, verse 16, if, if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Um, he, he doesn't, he's saying here, he's not trying to make an excuse for these things that he, that he does. He says, if I do the things that I, that I would not, that I don't will to do, he says, I, he still consents that the law is good, the law is right. Uh, and that's a, a, a thing, again, that the old nature often tries to do is to excuse sin and to say sin is justified or, or whatever. Paul's not doing that at all in this passage. He's saying the law is good. It's, it's me. It's me that's not doing the things. You know, I, I would do them. I will to do them, but I, I don't do them. And he says, if then I do that which I would not, he says, I consent unto the law that it is good, now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.